gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. So I've been thinking a lot about weddings in preparation for this sermon, and we've been kind of exploring this theme already in worship. Again, we had our bridesmaids and our groomsmen here at the start of worship. I begged Rick to play canon in D, but he shot me down on that front. But still, we have here a unity candle as we continue exploring the ways that weddings and the kingdom of God overlap. If you haven't seen something like this before, this is common but not always happening at weddings. And the way that it works is that early on in the service, two individuals will light these two candles. Usually it's someone connected to the couple, maybe one of the mothers and one of the grandmothers, you get the idea. And then later on in worship, the couple will together take the two candles and light the one unity candle together. And it's a highly symbolic ritual. And I really, really love it because I love the way that it invites us to see how a wedding is the combining of two lives, the combining of two families together to then bring new light into the world. As I said, it's a highly symbolic ritual. And in the same way, Jesus's miracle at that wedding at Cana was also a highly symbolic moment. We might have been familiar with this story of Jesus turning water into wine before coming to worship today. I know that it's one of people's favorite stories because it's just like, hey, read about this time Jesus did a cool party trick where he turned water into wine. And we get stuck on that because it's so delightful to think of there being 180 gallons worth of wine that Jesus brought to the party. But there's actually so much more baked into this story that we often miss. As we heard, it was the first of Jesus's miracles. And I think in a lot of ways, Jesus began his public ministry with this particular miracle sort of as an introduction of everything that was to come. In a lot of ways, the wedding at Cana is a microcosm of so much of Jesus's ministry and work that will take place in the three years that follow. Let me give you some examples of this. We are told in the gospel reading multiple times that this took place at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And now for those who haven't visited Cana recently, myself included, you might not know the significance of this particular location, but when they tell you that it's Cana in Galilee, they are telling you that Jesus went to a Gentile part of the world, somewhere that a normal Jewish rabbi probably wouldn't go. This whole miracle took place, we could say, on the other side of the tracks. And yet don't we know that Jesus was the type of person who would continually go to the places where no one else would. Again and again throughout Jesus's ministry, he reaches beyond borders and breaks our assumptions in order to bring God's message to the world and to the places that need it most. And so we see that right here in the beginning with him showing up at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Oh, but there's more than that. These six stone jars that the gospel writer John tells us about. It's such a peculiar detail. There were six stone jars there that held the water for the Jewish rite of purification, 
What a strange thing for them to be mentioning. And if you really think about it, these are the places where people would wash their hands for, so they could do the ritual cleansing needed to then participate in a meal or a celebration. And Jesus uses that and turns it into wine, which is a little gross if you think about it, that he used the hand-washing water to become wine, but we're gonna put that aside because what's deeply significant about this is that Jesus took an old Jewish ritual and transformed it into something new. And won't we see that again and again throughout his ministry? Jesus will get into arguments with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests, and he will take their old ways of understanding the law and the scriptures and transform it into new promises for a new day. We see the ways that this miracle at Cana is a small glimpse of all that is to come in Jesus' ministry. And when I say that, we also have to be reminded that we know how this story will end. Jesus will go through his ministry, reaching beyond borders, taking things that are old and making them new, and he'll end up crucified on a cross. That will be the place where he will take on all of our shame and all of our sin and even death itself for our sake. And believe it or not, we get a glimpse of this exact type of work in the story of the water being turned into wine. Here's what you need to know. In those days, when Jesus was attending this wedding in Cana, there was this system that ran all of society. It's just the way society was structured and worked. It's called an honor and shame system. And there's a lot of historians and theologians who have written a lot about this, but the general idea is that every interaction in society at that point in time was actually more of a transaction where one person would be honored and one person would be shamed. And depending on how much honor you had accumulated or depending on how much shame you had taken on, that could affect your entire livelihood. Who would do business with you? Who your family could marry? Who would talk to you and invite you over for dinner? It's hard for us to fully understand because we don't live in an honor-shame society in the same way they did back then. But this governed everything. And so, a wedding celebration was an incredible opportunity for a family to bring great honor, not only to them, but to the new couple in their life together. And so you would be able to then gain great honor by inviting the whole community to come to your daughter's wedding celebration, your son's wedding celebration, and that would then sustain your family for years to come with the honor that you built up. And so you can imagine that if you ran out of wine at this big communal wedding celebration, the intense amount of shame that that would bring upon your family. It was not just a party faux pas that day that they had run out of wine. This would have been a devastating moment for that family hosting the wedding. Their entire livelihood could have been taken away from them if people had found out that the wine was all gone. And so for Jesus to subtly and caringly fix this problem was again, not just a clever party trick. This was Jesus saving that family from ruin, destroying their shame, 
and giving them literal new life in a place where it almost ended. Even in the wedding at Cana, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the work he'll do on the cross, of overcoming our shame so that we can have new life. I want you to also recognize that all of these things I'm talking about took place at a wedding as well. And that's intentional too. I think it's no mistake that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding because his ministry is ultimately defined by joy and celebration and love and unity. I want you to think about a wedding you've been to. Think about a good wedding you've been to, because I'm sure we've all been to bad ones before. That's not what I'm talking about. But one of those weddings where when you are in the room, you can sense that something holy is taking place. By looking at the couple, you can see how much they love each other, and you can even see on the faces of the gathered community how much joy they have for just being a part of the celebration. I wonder if that's also what the kingdom of God is like that Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding because he wanted us to make this connection, that the kingdom of God is a place of joy and love overflowing, a place where, yes, shame is overcome, but a place ultimately where unity is what defines the day. That is a powerful life to move into. That is a powerful dream to work for and hope for, and I think that's what God calls us to be a part of, to bringing the kingdom of God like that to earth as it is in heaven as we pray. And so all of this brings me back to our unity candle. Jesus reveals to us at the wedding at Cana what the kingdom of God is like. He gives us a small glimpse of all his ministry that is to come. And the text tells us the disciples believed in him by being a part of that miraculous day at Cana. They then united their life with Jesus' mission and ministry. And in the same way, that's what we're called to do. We're called to take the light of our life, whatever our spiritual gifts might look like, whatever we have to offer, and to unite it with Jesus' mission of bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And when we do that, when we unite our life Like this, new light is created in the world. That kingdom then spreads. New light takes hold. The work of Jesus continues through each and every one of us. When we unite our lives with Jesus' mission like this. I want to close by recognizing that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And so I can't think of any better example of a person who united his life with the very mission of Christ. And we see and we still celebrate today all of the efforts of the civil rights movement and how that brought new light to our world. Dr. King grew up in the church. He was a Baptist minister who studied in seminary and preached on Sunday morning and in so many ways took hold of Jesus' message of love and equality and unity and then brought it into the world so that more people could encounter that light, and that hope. And so that's our call as well, to unite our light with the light of Christ's mission and message, to speak out against shame wherever it might take hold, 
to let go of that feeling of shame in our own life as well, and to foster joy and love and celebration in all places. Just as Jesus did at that wedding at Cana so many years ago. Amen.